0: Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast. Each week I focus on topics related to mental health and discuss ways to help you deal with issues like anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, PTSD and more. I've spent the last 30 years researching the mind-brain connection and mental health. I worked with patients who suffered from traumatic brain injuries struggled with anxiety, battled with learning issues and often worked with families to resolve major relationship and communication problems. In this podcast, you will hear the advice I gave to my patients and the techniques I developed and used to help them find healing. My goal is to give you simple, effective and practical tips and tools to help you take back control over your mental, emotional and physical health. Before I begin today's discussion, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has supported this podcast, either by leaving a review, spreading the word, sharing episodes with friends and family, and posting about this podcast on social media. I love reading your reviews and learning how I can make this podcast even more helpful. Now back to today's podcast. In today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about a really important topic, Alzheimer's. I'm going to be talking about what it is, what do we know about this, where's the current research going and is there anything that we can do to prevent Alzheimer's and what can we do if we have loved ones who are maybe suffering from Alzheimer's. The reason I decided to challenge this very, to take up this challenge of discussing this very important topic is because I get so many questions about this. And in my 25 years that I've practiced clinically, I worked with a number of patients and families that were diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementias. And I've also been very interested in following this research and the trends over the past 30 years in this field. And what struck me the most about this very mystifying and frightening problem is that we don't really have clear answers, despite the millions of dollars spent searching for causes. And when I say we don't have answers, the direction of research has been strongly in the direction of trying to find a medication to fix it. And that hasn't worked. So the new the, there's been a shift in the research and, and that research has started looking at Alzheimer's as a lifestyle disease. And if it's lifestyle, is it preventable? And I'm actually very happy to share with you that that is what the research is starting to show. That Alzheimer's is a preventable lifestyle disease. That there's many factors that are combined together. It's not just one cause. There isn't just one genetic cause or one biological cause or one lack of something that's causing it. But it's a whole combination of factors. It's still very unclear how all these factors interact to cause, to result in the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but there certainly is a trend and a pattern. And that's what I'm going to try and explain to you today and give you some tips to help you set up a preventative lifestyle so that you don't get the, the Alzheimer's and dementias. And also to, if you are, if you already have a loved one who's suffering from this diagnosis and battling, what can you do for them? So when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, generally professionals describe it as a process of neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid beta plaques and what those are, they those are called the neuropathological hallmarks of this disease. And what those are, they're like little, um, little blobs on the outside of the, the brain cells. And then inside the brain cells, it's like a bundle of all these tangles that get all tied up in knots. And that combination of these tangles and little plaques on the outside tend to cause the cells to sometimes to die and also just not to function properly. And some of the first symptoms of Alzheimer's are short-term processing, so people battling to process information as they're listening, and then that rate gets worse and worse, short-term memory problems, not being able to remember what they've just done or just said from a few minutes or a few hours ago, depending on how how much the, the symptoms have progressed. What is very often a symptom is that there's a very good recall of long-term memories that can talk in detail about what happened to them when they were very young and they can remember those very deeply, very very intensely. But the short-term memory and processing and cognitive processing and understanding and being able to follow complex commands, that becomes progressively more impacted. So, what the growing the body of research is showing is that if it's a lifestyle disease, then what are the lifestyle things that we need to address? And what is, is there, is there the questions being asked are if we exercise more, if we look at reducing exposure to chemicals, and if we address diet, and if we look at sleep, and if we look at, if we look at thinking and all these kinds of lifestyle things, will we see some difference? And so far, there's been a lot of research, as I've mentioned, the Buck Institute for Research on Aging has actually shown quite a dramatic improvement in patients diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease when they've been put into a, onto an individualized lifestyle type program where they're looking at sleep and exercise and diet and addressing, building, building the brain, Like they call it cognitive reserve, where you actually build the brain by doing exercises that will help, help you think and learn and get extra brain cells growing in your brain. And the, another uh, another research that, another study that's very famous is called the Nun Study that was originally done at the University of Minnesota and then and then Kentucky and where they followed a number of nuns over a number of years and they showed that after they died when they did the autopsies that even though the nuns had extensive neurofibrillary tangles and plaques which are considered the the hallmarks of the disease as I mentioned even though on on autopsy they found lots of these arcs and tangles. none of these nuns actually showed the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease in their lifetime. These nuns actually led lifestyles that focused on very disciplined and detox thought lives, extensive learning to build cognitive reserve, a very healthy diet and exercise and great sleep patterns. And so, even though they had the actual physical symptoms in their brain, their lifestyles seemed to be blocking the those physical structural problems from actually manifesting symptomatically during their lifestyle. And so, studies like these have really triggered a good trend of research in this direction. One of a very interesting study that came out of Yale showed that a, a very important mind or mindset is not to have fear about getting Alzheimer's and fear of aging. You see, what's happened with the media and with all this research going on into Alzheimer's is there's a constant message in the media of so many more people by this year, 2020, whatever, there's going to be so many more million people affected by Alzheimer's. I mean, it's costing this and it's costing that. So there's a lot of fear messages. It's almost as though the message through the media has come through as being, well, it's inevitable. You're going to get Alzheimer's and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's created a lot of fear. And so interesting studies have been done in this direction. And Yale brought out a study showing that, that the actual fear of getting Alzheimer's may be one of the triggers that starts the process, that actually activates the plaques and tangles or increases the number or makes those, um, it causes those structural changes to manifest. I mean, There's a lot of research that's been done on fear. And fear in itself creates a very damaging signal through the brain. Fear is a mind action. It is a mindset. And when you fear, it's your thinking and your feeling and the choices that you make that is generating a very damaging quantum electrochemical and, chem- and a magnetic signals through the brain, which creates chaos in the brain right down to the level of the DNA. And that in turn affects the entire genome of the body. When Yale released the study, they showed that negative beliefs about aging and worrying about getting Alzheimer's and, and being scared of aging actually predicted people getting Alzheimer's disease. They showed that individuals who fear and hold a lot of negative beliefs about aging are more likely to show the brain changes associated with Alzheimer's disease and these symptoms were manifesting in their life quite early on. This study also demonstrated a link between the changes in the brain seen in Alzheimer's disease to these culturally-based psychosocial beliefs, which is, this, which is the big fancy word for the message of the media that this Alzheimer's is inevitable. And the stress that's generated or the toxic stress that's generated by these negative beliefs is reducing um, the resilience of of individuals and it's being internalized by individuals and that internalization is damaging the brain. They even saw that the, the size of a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is very involved in short term processing, which is what it's very active now while you're listening to me, your hippocampus is very active because it's processing what I'm saying and it helps to build what I'm saying into memory. And what they found was people that have a lot of fear is that the hippocampus reduces in size. So there's definite associations between fear and damage to the brain that can then activate these kind of symptoms. Another study done by the University of Arizona and the University of Alberta and Harvard showed that the kind of thinking that we have, this negative toxic thinking, in addition to lifestyle, being exposed to chemicals, but not having a diet that has enough zinc or various different, to all the different minerals and vitamins that we need, can affect how the the structures deep down inside our brain called microtubules, where which they propose is where the memories are actually stored, those get very damaged. And these little microtubules rebuild themselves every few hours and they're very involved in helping the brain and the body to function at a high level. And if this process of them rebuilding is affected, it does set people up for Alzheimer's disease and it seems to be that thinking, toxic thinking, plays a major role in the effectiveness of these little microtubules. So I know this is a lot of sciencey stuff, but what it's really saying is that there is a very strong impact of our lifestyle, how we're thinking, how we're eating, what we're doing with our exercise, how we're sleeping. Those are definitely um, triggers that seem to be causing or activating very destructive brain processes. And there's definitely a link to these plaques and tangles, but there's definitely a link to how they are activated. And it seems to that the lifestyle diseases activate them. I remind you again of the nun study where they showed there were lots and lots of plaques and tangles in the brains of these nuns, but they none of them showed symptoms—the memory symptoms and the cognitive decline and so on—that happens with Alzheimer's. And they were they, their lifestyles were were very positive, and they worked a lot on cognitive reserve. And we're going to talk about some of those points in a bit more detail in a moment. The trend that I have observed in the research is that an individualized approach to preventing Alzheimer's is one that incorporates all these lifestyle factors with a heavy emphasis on building cognitive reserve and then focusing on diet, etc. So this is the approach that I use with my patients over 25 years, which I'm now going to summarize. And I'm going to break this into two areas. The first area is how we can build cognitive reserve. I'll define that and then give you some examples. And in the second area are the, the other lifestyle components like diet and exercise and so on. We're going to talk about this in terms of preventative at, f- at first, and then I'll briefly talk about if you do have a loved one or know someone who's battling with Alzheimer's, how can you apply these principles with them as well. Okay, so the first thing is let's look at this concept of cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve is a really good term. It's a really excellent term and it means that you've really been thinking and building your brain. Every morning when you wake up, you have a whole bunch of new nerve cells that you have pretty much given birth to. It's called neurogenesis. And in fact, during the course of the day, while you are thinking and feeling and choosing, you are using these new new nerve cells in your brain to build the strength of your brain, to build this cognitive reserve, to build the thoughts that you're building during the course of the day. This also, as you're doing this, you are growing other branches in your brain. And and this is all called neuroplasticity, this ability of our brain to use the new baby nerve cells, the neurogenesis, and then to constantly build these into our networks and to add more and more branches. Actually, our brains are will naturally want to build lots and lots and lots of these branches. You're constantly building them. You're building them now as as you're listening to me. The way you build these branches and the way you use your your nerve cells is going to impact the quality of your cognitive reserve. So if you're thinking in a very organized way, if you get your mind management under control, if you have what I'd call mental hygiene, where you are deliberately and intentionally trying to learn, trying to build new information, trying to get your emotions under control, trying to deal with stuff in your life, trying to deal with toxic issues, trying to eat healthy, when you have that sort of deliberate lifestyle approach, your brain responds very well and you start building a lot of extra physical substance in your brain. You're not going to use all of it today and you're not going to use all of it tomorrow and each day as you build more of this cognitive reserve, it's like you've got this little reservoir of extra nerve cells that if you do have a breakdown in certain parts of your brain, when you if you do start developing plaques and tangles, if you do have damage in your brain from some whatever reason it may be, you can draw on this cognitive reserve. But you've got to keep it strong. It's got to be quality and it's got to be actively accessible. And this is how you can make that kind of cognitive reserve. Here's how you do it. It means that you have to work on your short-term memory and your long-term memory. You have to put yourself into a brain-building type of process on a daily basis. Research in this area from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, across the board, uh, universities across the board throughout the world have shown that things like more education, higher degrees in literacy, regular engagement in mentally stimulating activities, and so on, results in an, in an abundance of and flexibility in neural connections. And that's what you want. You want lots of, and you want lots of flexibility. And that builds lots of good quality cognitive reserve in, into your brain. So in order to build up your cognitive reserve, you have to work on building short-term and long-term flexibility. So short-term and long-term cognitive reserve. Short-term cognitive reserve is kind of like flexibility in your muscles. You know, when you first start to exercise, everything's stiff and you're not very good at certain exercises. And then as you do more and more, you get better and better and you get more and more flexibility. And then you can learn a new exercise or a new skill. That's, what, that's how I want you to think of the short term. The short term is getting flexibility around what we call the synapses in the brain. I'm pretty certain you've heard about a synapse and that's where, and where the branches of the brain connect with each other. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on there and a lot of activity that's related to the initial short term processing of memory. From there, within 24 to 48 hours, the activity moves to the outer part of the the little nerve cell, and that's called the dendrites, and that's long-term memory. So we'll address that in a moment. So before I give you some tips on how to improve your short-term memory, let's just quickly talk about normal forgetfulness and forgetfulness that's a little bit more concerning. It's actually quite normal to forget, and an example of this is the tip of the tongue phenomenon. We've all experienced that. In fact, it's so normal. The typical 25, the average 25 year old will experience about three to four tips of the tongue in a week. And it does increase a little bit with age. And this is really normal. When, when you have a tip of the tongue, it's like you just know what it is, but you can't quite remember. You can maybe visualize it. You can remember the how many syllables or the first letter or something. And then a few hours later, it comes back. That's totally normal and it's a great opportunity to actually exercise your and develop your short-term memory. As soon as you catch yourself doing those tip-of-the-tongue phenomenons, as soon as you catch yourself in a tip-of-the-tongue moment, instead of just bypassing it, be very conscious and deliberate and aware of it. That in itself is immediately going to change the way that your brain responds and how it's functioning chemically and so on. And then maybe write it down, Google it, ask someone. In other words, find what it is that you can't remember and write that down and make a conscious, deliberate effort to remember it. So don't just let it pass, use that as an exercise to develop your short-term memory. Now this is in contrast, tips to of the tongue are normal, in contrast to where the word just completely drops out and it just doesn't come back. And that the whole, that there's no prompts, there's no, it just goes. And when the person's forgetting what happened a few moments ago, that's very uh, strong, that's stronger evidence that there's more of a dementia type memory problem. And if it's, especially if it's consistent, especially if it's happening a lot, that is a sign that something else is going on. Okay, so building cognitive reserve in terms of short-term cognitive reserve, just being aware of the difference between tip-of-the-tongue phenomenon and then the more, what we would say, pathological type of forgetting is really going to change the way that your neural buffering starts developing. So awareness, awareness of the difference, awareness, it's okay to do this and I'm going to do something. Just that perception changes your brain. There's a lot of power in perception when it comes to short-term cognitive reserve. When we're aware, when we self-regulate, that's really building up cognitive reserve. When we're aware of how we, you know, forgetting, remembering, and so on. The second thing is being very deliberate and intentional about doing something about what you've forgotten. So for example, I often forget the names of books and movies and actors, and I make a very deliberate effort to ask someone, look it up, write it down. I turn it into an exercise, in other words, to, as a way of making sure that if I've had a tip of the tongue phenomenon, that I do remember it. I don't just let it pass. So you can use mnemonics, some great mnemonic tools that are out there to help you to remember something that's a tip of the tongue phenomenon. You can do word associations, you can type it into your phone, you can carry a little journal around and write it down. As you are remembering that, get a visual image in your brain, like a hook, which is, is in essence a mnemonic type technique where you hook the word onto a visual image to help you remember. It's just the mere practicing this that is important. Another great thing is practice memorizing your shopping list and telephone numbers. We've become so lazy with our iPhones and cell phones that we don't remember numbers anymore. I remember a day when I used to memorize everyone's number and we get get lazy. So that's what I do. I deliberately and intentionally memorize numbers as an exercise as well. All this is really helping you build up this cognitive reserve, a short-term cognitive reserve. Okay, let's now look at a few exercises to build long-term cognitive reserve. Whereas short term is more catching that moment and making an effort to deliberately, intentionally remember these these things that you've forgotten, cognitive reserve is long term cognitive reserve. Studying, it's learning, it's deep thinking to understand. It's gaining new knowledge. It's going deeper than just remembering what you've forgotten. It's actually deliberately and intentionally saying, okay, I'm going to set aside time today to read something with such depth and understanding that I'm going to build a memory of this. I'm going to learn this information as though you're preparing for an exam or as though you've got to do a presentation or give a lecture on this information. So it's a deeper level of thinking, makes a change beyond just the synapse and actually pushes, pushes that information, the electrical stimulation and the quantum energy into the outer part of the nerve network and you start growing little dendrites, which are branches that are made up of these little special microcomputers in your neurological little quantum microcomputers in your brain. And that is excellent cognitive reserve. What I do is every single day I have set aside between one to two hours a day and I don't skip a day where I will study new information, where I will deliberately and intentionally sit down and take new information that I need, that I'm interested in. I, you know, you can take information that you're interested in, which I uh, advise because it's so much easier to do this, but I take information that is beyond my scope of knowledge. So I challenge myself to learn new information in an area or a field that is, that is, a, is of interest to me. And I do this normally first thing in the morning where I catch up with my research of the day related to brain science and then I select something within that that I will really study deeply. I also will do things like I will listen to the news and I won't just listen. I will actually try and go along and go along with what I'm hearing, not just hear it, but actually analyze it. Think about it deeply. Think about how it applies to society, how it applies to my field of mental health and how people are reacting to this. So I kind of have this ask, answer, discuss, discussion with myself when I listen to information. It means that I'm really thinking deeply about this, but this is challenging my brain and I'm building branches in my brain. I'm growing dendrites and, and that's the, the dendrites that you grow. These are absolutely quality dendrites are essential to building up cognitive reserve. And when you study something that makes you actually have to work quite hard, that's quite hard to understand. That's, e- that's going to build even better quality cognitive reserve. So it's very deliberate, it's very intentional, it's very, I allocate time. And if you think, okay, I don't have time for that, well then, you know, take some time off Facebook that you maybe spend on Facebook or social media, or reduce your time watching TV, or reduce your, t- find find time. It's amazing how, when we really look, we can find that quality 45 to 60 minutes a day. I recommend that as a minimum, and I talk about this in my book, Think, Learn, Succeed. Then the third, third area for building cognitive reserve that is really, really important is detoxing the brain. When we have issues that we haven't dealt with, when you've got unprocessed, painful memories, when we've got toxic habits, when we've got when we're not allowing ourselves to feel and process information and experience information, experience emotions and feel things and talk things through, etc., we build up toxic, physical, toxic damage inside of our brain. Thoughts real things you change the structure of your brain and if you build up toxic thoughts this breaks down and, and kind of like attacks the good cognitive reserve the toxic reserve the toxic thoughts can attack the great good and uh, cognitive reserve that we've built up so the point that i've just described where you've deliberately and intentionally taken the time during the day to study and build this great new networks these great new networks in the brain build these dendrites they can be damaged by toxic thinking So your good stuff can be damaged by the bad stuff. And also you get neurochemical chaos in your brain when you don't detox it. And that's really bad for when it comes to plaques and tangles and damage in the brain and setting you up for dementias and things like that. So detoxing the brain should be part of your lifestyle. And I recommend spending around 7 to 16 minutes a day detoxing your brain. And to this end, I have developed an app called The Switch, which is a great tool, audio-driven tool that will help you to, spend, to just guide you through the process of detoxing your brain for about 7 to 16 minutes a day. I do this in the morning when I wake up, Often, I mean, when I'm getting ready. So when I wake up is when I generally do my first batch of brain building. And then when I'm getting ready, I do my detoxing. And I've got myself into that routine, but it's a part of my routine and it's building up good cognitive reserve. You have heard me talk about the importance of building your brain to boost mental health and reduce anxiety and depression. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. So, you may think you don't have time, to read a book or to develop yourself but there is an app I highly recommend it's called Blinkist Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read or you can listen to them I like to use Blinkist in the morning as part of my daily brain building and detoxing routine I recently just read Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman and The Power of Habits by Charles Duhigg I highly recommend you check them out Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Leaf to start your free 7-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash to start your free 7-day trial. The link will be in the show notes. Before we continue, I want to tell you about and invite you to my 2019 Mental Health Summit in Dallas, Texas, December 6th and 7th. In this conference, you'll learn scientifically researched mental self-care techniques to help you overcome mental ill health, help others, and help your community. You will not only gain more knowledge about the current problems in mental health care, but also about real long-term sustainable solutions and how to apply these solutions in your own life and in your community. In this summit, you will learn how to overcome mental health issues like anxiety and depression, learn how to help children and teens, learn correct nutrition and exercise to boost your mental health, learn how to identify and define your unique identity based on neuroscientific research. Learn how to improve memory. Learn how to help family members and loved ones who struggle with mental ill health. Learn how to avoid burnout and manage stress. Learn how to deal with disappointment. Learn how to overcome intrusive and chaotic thinking. And so much more. For more information and to register, go to drleafconference.com. The next thing for cognitive reserve is intentionally developing social relationships and deep meaningful relationships. Extremely important in building that cognitive reserve buffer against Alzheimer's disease. We, we design for deep meaningful relationships and when we have deep conversations with people and we connect and we sort out issues and we experience positive emotions and share ideas and have these great conversations, it's changing your brain. It's growing branches in your brain that are building this buffer of cognitive reserve. And and we, so when you go into, into stages of your life where maybe you are a little bit lonelier or you are going through some sort of emotional challenge the connections you've built in these deep, developing these deep social connections is going to really step in and help a lot in that situation. It's go, you're going to draw on those to help you. There's a lot of research that is showing that isolation really damages the brain and feeling lonely and that, that, that is a big contributor to Alzheimer's disease and to the dementias is, is loneliness and not having those deep social connections. So there's a change chemically and neurochemically and structurally in your brain when you intentionally develop social relationships. And obviously it's different for each person, how many people you do this with, how often, how long. It's very much up to you individually. You may only need a few of these. You may need a lot depending on who you are, but make it part of your lifestyle. And then other very logical ways of building cognitive reserves as buffers include reading, 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 and thinking about what you read. And then listening to podcasts and listening to um, listening to information. When, like when I, I mentioned, when I listen to, when I do exercise, I have a podcast playing. When I'm relaxing in my sauna, I generally will have a podcast playing. And then when I'm listening, I don't just listen. As I mentioned already, I really ask, answer, and discuss and try to apply that information and maybe even have a conversation with my husband or my kids or friends over, Lunch. I apply that. I try and listen to different opinions and I try and learn something new about what I already know or look at it from a different angle. So I'm always challenging myself mentally, and this is very good for building up cognitive reserve. Another great way is to watch a video or listen to a podcast and then analyze it and write down your analysis. So not just listen and talk about it, but actually watch, listen, and then write, analyze it and break it down into points and summarize. So so in other words, write about it. Um, You might pause, as you're listening, you may pause the button frequently and stop and write down what you've just heard and analyze that and, and think about how you're going to use that information to maybe teach someone else something or think about you using that information for an exam, even if you're not. But just by getting yourself into that mindset that I need to know this information in order to analyze it is very, very important. Now let's look at some more preventative measures that are still also related to lifestyle. And the first one is sleep. Dr. Lisa Genova is a neuroscientist and she wrote the book Still Alice, which was made into a movie and you might have seen that. And she has done very interesting work in Alzheimer's disease and she truly believes that Alzheimer's disease can be prevented. I, I totally agree with her. She believes that the way she explains it is excellent and that the buildup of plaques and tangles can be averted because it takes about 10 to 20 years before the tipping point is reached for them to become symptomatic. And what that means is that, and I said this earlier on in that we we all build plaques and tangles, but it takes 10 to 20 years before they become symptomatic. And sometimes they never become symptomatic, like I mentioned with the NUN study. But there's certain triggers that can make them become symptomatic and also increase the speed at which they build up and the damage that they do. And already the thinking side, the cognitive reserve side, which we've just discussed, are ways of preventing. But in addition, Dr. Lisa Genova talks about the importance of sleep, and she's not the only neuroscientist. There's a lot of research showing the importance of sleep in preventing the buildup of plaques and tangles. And basically, when we sleep, it's almost like we're having a deep cleanse in the brain when you're going to the slow wave, deep sleep, there's certain cells in your brain called glial cells that I like to call our housekeeping cells. And what these cells do is, besides being involved in cognition, they're also very involved in cleaning up your brain. The glial cells literally rinse cerebrospinal fluid, which is a fluid that flows through the brain and the spine, and they rinse it through the brain. And this clears away a lot of the metabolic waste that accumulates during the business of being awake. So when you're awake, all the thinking and things that you do is is basically that you and you're keeping yourself alive and so on all this is is metabolism and and we always have waste products from metabolism from thinking and from physical metabolism and this accumulates so at night time when we sleep we need to clean out this metabolic waste and that's a large role that is happening while we are sleeping and especially during slow wave, deep sleep, the glial cells rinse, r- rinse out, rinse the cerebrospinal fluid through our brain. So think of it like a kind of a, a garden hose or a floor cleaner or something. Here come the glial cells and they're rinsing out the, the brain as you're sleeping and getting rid of the toxic waste. Bad sleeping patterns can cause the amyloid beta and the tau neurofibrillary tangles to basically pile up. Sleep is essentially like a deep cleanse where it washes away the amyloid beta and the toxic waste buildup. So sleep is obviously very important. We all know that. But panicking about sleep is not going to help you. So don't panic now and think, oh my gosh, now I'm not sleeping, I'm going to get Alzheimer's. Remember what I said at the beginning of this podcast, that fear in itself increases your chance of getting Alzheimer's. So fear of not sleeping is going to do that too. So the big thing is is to calm down and relax about your sleeping. If you have a bad sleeping pattern, that's okay. You can get this under control. And one of the first ways of getting it under control is trying to remove the fear out of not sleeping. Remember, they don't really know how many hours all of us should sleep. Yes, there seems to be an ideal of six to eight hours, but it's very different for every person. And it also differs according to your job, your lifestyle, what you're going through at the moment. But there are some basic things that you can do to start helping you get a healthy sleep pattern. There's obviously also multiple reasons why a person can't sleep. I mean, it could be from medications. It could be from having a reaction to an illness or something like that. So the first thing about sleeping is not to panic about it. The second thing is to Make sure before you go to sleep at night that you've addressed the thoughts that you have, everything that's been going on in the day. One of the worst things is to fall asleep with undealt with issues because those undealt with issues are also being sorted out at night. When you sleep, your body regenerates and your mind is sorting out your thinking. So if your thinking is chaotic as you fall asleep, it will result in chaotic sleeping. So it's a great idea that just before you go to sleep that either mentally or write it down, you work out, okay, today this and this and this happened or these issues I'm still concerned about. I can't fix this now, but I can fix this tomorrow. You know, it's bring order out of the, out of this potentially unpredictable day of thoughts that you've had. Get yourself some closure and some action plans of, okay, I'll handle this tomorrow. I'll handle this next week. So you go to sleep. You've acknowledged that you've got it dealt with. That is probably one of the key main reasons why people don't sleep. So if you can work on that, it's going to help you tremendously. And then there's natural ways of of sleeping. Diet plays a huge role. Hormones plays a huge role. You can take things like metatonin and GABA. And you can also exercise close to bedtime, which can make you very tired. Now let's talk about diet briefly. There's a definite link between the modern American diet and Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, they even call Alzheimer's disease type 3, or there's some research that's indi- that calls Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes, showing that it's linked to the impacts that diet, that the modern American diet processed food-like products have on the gut and the gut-brain connection. And how it messes with Basically messes with the, the microbiome and it also causes a, an increased release of amyloid beta protein, which is a very important protein for the brain and the body. But when it's, when it's released in large quantities, it accumulates, it gets into the bloodstream, bashes through the blood brain barrier, pretty much damages it and then accumulates in the brain. We know that amyloid beta plaques are part of the hallmarks. We see this in people with Alzheimer's. And it over 10 to 20 years it builds up. But definitely the more of a modern American diet that you eat, the more this increases. And the more you've got, the more amyloid beta that you're pouring into your brain, toxic amyloid beta you're pouring into your brain through the modern American diet, the more you're actually setting yourself up to increase the plaques and tangles. And this is one of the contributing factors. So we definitely need to watch the modern American diet. We need to watch the the processed sugars, the salts, the fat laden, the bad, f- damaged fat laden foods, which are can imp- impact cause, um, cardiovascular disease and diabetes and stroke and allergies, and all those things can also contribute to dementias. So, there's like a whole disease process that can get set up that can then have the dementias and like Alzheimer's as one of the consequences. For more information on, on this, see my book, Think and Eat Yourself Smart. And then the last tip I want to give you in terms of prevention is exercise. There is extensive research on the importance of exercise as a preventative tool against Alzheimer's disease. In essence, the studies show that people who exercise often improve their memory performance and show greater increase in brain blood flow to the hippocampus. And that's a key brain region that deals with converting short to long-term memory and processing information. It's working hard as you're listening to me now, which I also mentioned earlier on. And this is these are areas that are particularly affected by Alzheimer's disease early on in the disease and as the disease progresses. So for more on exercise, I also recommend you see my book, Think and Eat Yourself Smart. So, in terms of someone that is, has early signs of dementias or Alzheimer's, then I, the, what I would recommend is that you take all these tips that I've given you and you work actively with them on making all these tips a very big part of your lifestyle. So, what I would do with my patients, for example, is I would get the family involved, the caretakers involved. I set up not just one person, but get a team of people because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of, it can be a lot of emotional strain. You must never just have one person. You need to have more than one person involved. So, to get a team and to then look at these points and to really build this into the daily routine of that person. The more independent they can be in the exercises, the better, but it's daily exercise, daily detoxing, daily building the brain, diet, sleep, exercise, all of these need to become a routine. It's almost as though you need to sit down and work out a whole program and schedule for that person and get a team of people to help. For someone who's in advanced stages, obviously there's, they're going to be much more reliant on you doing this for them. So obviously diet and exercise, those are things that depending on how, how bad they are, you're going to have to help. You're going to have to have a team of caregivers even more actively involved. If they aren't able to read anymore, you can read to them. If they aren't able to really process or discuss things, it doesn't mean that you can't explain things to them. So you could read something or show them something from the news or show something to them that a movie that you know that they used to love and watch the movie with them and then talk about the movie. In other words, keep the mind stimulated. What I saw happening so much when I was working in in clinical practice and I would go to a lot of the old age homes to see my patients is they were just left to sit there and just drugged and sitting and doing nothing. And that's not good enough. You need to mobilize teams of people in your church, in your community. I mean, this is a great community outreach to go and sit with these people and read to them and watch movies and talk to them and keep stimulating the brain. This really is important in terms of helping to address, to arrest the progress and to try to stop it getting worse and to improve the quality of their lifestyle. So in summary, we need to be active participants when it comes to the health of our brains and to teach ourselves and our future generations how to safeguard our precious ability to think. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful.